It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Wednesday, August 25th, 2021. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. I am Guy Benson. Thank you for listening every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. If you miss any of it live, there are many ways to listen at GuyBensonShow.com or on our affiliates across this great nation. You can also catch the podcast for free, the whole show. No charge to you on demand after the show ends. GuyBensonShow.com. I'll be on Fox News at night, at least I'm scheduled to be, with Shannon Bream later in the midnight hour. Looking forward to that. Here on the radio side, here's what we've got. Juan Williams later this hour. Chris Christie, former New Jersey governor, next hour. And Senator Joni Ernst of Iowa in our final hour. Fox News alert as we begin. Stats, 38.1 million confirmed COVID cases in the United States total cumulatively. The true number is much higher. The death toll from COVID in the United States, 631,050. The Dow is up 61 points right now to 35,427. Another Fox News alert. The Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, after a 24-hour delay and an additional delay today, he is briefing the press right now. He has said a few things just in the last few minutes. He estimated the number of Americans that they know of still seeking to be evacuated from Afghanistan could be in the 500 to 1,500 range. A previous report today put that number at more than 4,000. He said it's hard to get the exact figures and they are very fluid. That does not include Afghan allies. He also said that the U.S. State Department will continue efforts to evacuate Americans or Afghan allies after the withdrawal date, after the military is gone August 31st. But I cannot imagine how that is a viable plan for reasons that we will get to in just a moment. Let's dip in briefly live as reporters are now asking questions of the Secretary of State. Second, with regard to uh, women and other Afghans uh, at risk going forward, we will use, I will use, every diplomatic, economic, political, and assistance tool at my disposal, working closely with allies and partners who feel very much the same way to do everything possible to uphold their basic rights. Uh, and that's Okay, well, I mean, look, to me, that sounds like nice words, happy talk, absolutely delusional. Truly. The Taliban has already pinched off access to the airport. They are denying access. In fact, we are denying access. To these visa holders, these Afghans who helped us. Some Americans have been turned away. That was the report yesterday from Politico. There have been allies of ours, collaborators, as the Taliban might call them, who have already 
been murdered. Once the American troops are gone, the U.S. government can say whatever they want about what they hope and how they're going to work through diplomatic channels. We've abandoned the embassy. We've abandoned the embassy. The Taliban will control everything, and there will be a very ugly fate for very many people. That is a profound and real fear today. And we have learned, and this of course makes sense, the deadline is next Tuesday, the 31st, at midnight. But the real deadline for civilians could be as soon as this Friday, the day after tomorrow. Because the White House is confirming, and there are multiple multiple reports out there now, that the military, the U.S. military at some point, has to stop the rescue mission, stop the evacuation mission, and turn inward and get their own personnel out in time. That will be a multi-day process. When that pivot happens, the desperation is going to get crazy among people who have been left behind and stranded. Because that will start to feel less like stranding and more like abandonment. There are reports that I saw just one moment ago in the Wall Street Journal that there are missions being undertaken right now by U.S. military and the CIA on the ground in Kabul and outside of Kabul to try to bring Americans to safety, and that is good. Godspeed. May they succeed. The clock is ticking in a very frightening way, and the realization seems to be setting in that there will be likely Americans left behind and certainly Afghan allies left behind, many of them in all likelihood. President Biden just held an event at the White House. When it ended, a reporter from NBC News, Peter Alexander, shouted a question at him about the deadline, and if he was thinking about extending the deadline of August 31st. Biden smirked and sort of chuckled. The White House cut off the audio feed of the event, and Alexander says that the president said, you'll be the first guy I call. Just this very strange, flippant, callous, snarky comment from the President of the United States in response to a completely legitimate question in the middle of an ongoing acute crisis of the President's making. And he decided that would be his response. NBC News, Richard Engel, who's on the ground, he filed this report, cut 13, listen. This is the United States after 20 years. This war used to be called Operation uh, Enduring Freedom. And it's turned out not to be enduring, and they're not leaving behind a society that is free. It is only free according to what the Taliban says it will be free. The Taliban promises that it will be free. So uh, you could also look at this as a tremendously humiliating moment of American humiliation, leaving, forced to leave on the Taliban's clock uh, and and with the Taliban's good graces. So tactically it makes sense, but I'm not sure how history will, I think history will judge this moment as as a very dark period for the United States. A humiliation with the United States working on the Taliban's clock. The Taliban, as we said yesterday, appeared to be calling the shots here, and it sounds like NBC and their correspondent on the ground has reached the same conclusion. ABC News had a segment in which they were interviewing one of the U.S. commanders on the ground there, talking about the possibility of Americans being left behind. Cut 14. How confident are you that all American citizens who want to leave, all Afghans, 
who risk their lives to help us in this mission will get out in the next seven days. And so I, what I can guarantee is we will get as many out as we possibly can with the time we have available. Which uh, implies some will be left behind. I, or could I won't be. speculate that, on that. All I can say is we will get as many out as we possibly can. I think that answer speaks for itself. I don't want to speculate. They're talking about the time frame, and that time frame is the Taliban's time frame that the president has agreed to. Yesterday, and we played this clip, Jen Psaki at the White House also acknowledging, they don't want to say it, but acknowledging that there very well could be Americans left behind. And again, the number of Americans over there still left is a moving target. There were reports and comments from administration officials earlier that there were at least 4,100 Americans, more than 4,000. Keep in mind, we're probably two or three days away from the evacuation ending. Is the number 4,100? Previous estimates, not long ago, 10 to 15,000 Americans were in Afghanistan. They say that they've gotten 4,500 of them out. That would mean that there are many more thousands left. If that estimate was even close to accurate, it seems like that estimate has been brought way down by the State Department today. Although they admit that it's a tricky business, they're not quite sure if the numbers can be fully verified. Some of this had to do with Americans who had registered previously with the State Department. So the number of Americans seems to be left in Afghanistan somewhere between 500 and 4,100, but maybe more. We don't know. Could some of them be left behind? Jen Psaki yesterday at the White House cut 24. If one U.S. citizen was suddenly discovered, you know, saying, hey, I really want to get out and I'm stuck, who knows where, somewhere in Afghanistan or in Kabul, he's got any problem, would this trigger a diplomatic, military, or hands-on-deck type thing to get that person out, whatever the date? Our commitment continues to be to U.S. citizens. If they want to leave, we will help get them out. No matter what the date. Uh, again, we expect there could be some, uh, but I, I don't, I'm not going to get into it further. Go ahead. I'm not going to get into it further. I'm sure she would prefer not to. Incidentally, the Blinken press conference is over. He gave a statement, he answered a handful of questions, and he's out. Biden, as I mentioned, the president, kind of half took one question, made a snide remark to the reporter who asked it, and then took no further questions. This is the commander-in-chief as this is all playing out. There are hundreds, probably thousands of Americans still stuck in Afghanistan, and there are many thousands of Afghan allies to whom we have promised an oath This is not a promise to your kids about a birthday present. This is a promise that we are not going to betray you. After helping us, helping our military, our government for years, we are not going to betray you by letting you die at the hands of a terrorist organization that might take over your country. We are not going to abandon you and your family. You cannot make a more serious promise to anyone about anything, ever. That is a vow written in blood. And it is undeniable at this point that we are going to violate that pledge to a lot of people. Likely some Americans and certainly many Afghans. The State Department saying, oh, we're going to keep trying to help through various measures and channels to get these people out after the U.S. military is gone. 
given the Taliban is already murdering some of these people? I cannot imagine that comes as any comfort whatsoever to those that we are actively right now betraying. Because whether it's in 48 or 72 hours, the U.S. military is going to stop and cease the evacuations and focus on getting themselves out by the Taliban deadline. And then all bets are off and God help the people left. I want to remind you of what the president promised. Back on June 24th, so this was before he said it was highly unlikely that the Taliban was going to take over the country. He said that last month in July. This was back during the sunny days. Biden made this promise. This is the president of the United States making an unequivocal promise. Listen to cut nine. We've already begun the process. Those who help us are not going to be left behind. You know what country they're going to move to first? I don't know that. I'll be meeting with the uh, with Ghani tomorrow. The head of he's coming to my office. That will be discussion. But they're welcome here, just like anyone else who risked their lives to help us. They're going to come, Biden said in June. Those who helped us are not going to be left behind. The happy talk continued. This is going to go well. We're going to keep our embassy. The Taliban isn't going to take over. It's highly unlikely. And then everything hit the fan. Nevertheless, that promise that you just heard was reiterated from the president, by the president, on Friday, this past Friday. We played it. We were listening to it with you. Cut 10. We're going to do everything, everything that we can to provide safe evacuation for our Afghan allies, partners, and Afghans who, 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 who might be targeted if, because of their association with the United States. But let me be clear. Any American who wants to come home, we will get you home. He was asked if that promise also applied to our Afghans, our Afghans who helped us, and he said yes. It was the promise that he made in June. It was the promise he made again on Friday. Quote, we are making the same commitment, he said, to our allies in Afghanistan and our helpers as we were to U.S. citizens. That is his quote from Friday. He said the Afghan allies are, quote, equally important in the, evacu- in the evacuations. And we know that that actually is not true. And now the betrayal... And the wages of that betrayal are becoming quite clear with members of Congress in both parties saying all the intelligence and the sources on the ground say you're going to have a lot of people left behind. There were two congressmen, one Republican, one Democrat, Congressman Meyer from Michigan, Congressman Moulton from Massachusetts, both veterans. They flew to Afghanistan. They went to Kabul yesterday. They are saying there is no way we can get these people out in time, even if we extend until September 11th. That's their assessment on the ground. They're getting attacked by the administration for going to Afghanistan as a distraction. They did not take up a single seat because there are airplanes leaving Afghanistan right now almost empty because the Taliban isn't letting these people through. It is a very, very ugly situation, and that's why we read to you from the NBC story yesterday Quoting defense officials, intelligence officials, quote, people are furious and disgusted about this betrayal. One official said, quote, he grew nauseated as he considered how many Afghan allies will be left behind. 
We are already turning away our people, turning away interpreters and other people who have the visas that we gave them based on this promise. And some of those people are being shot and killed by the Taliban right now. The people on whom we are relying, amazingly, and whose timeline the president has just accepted. We will take a break as we get started here on The Guy Benson Show on this Wednesday. Stay with us. The Guy Benson Show. More next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. This is now on track to be the largest airlift in U.S. history. Uh, So, and that is a, a... bringing American citizens out. It is bringing our Afghan partners out. It is bringing allies out. Uh, So no, I would not say that is anything but a success. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. That was yesterday. Jen Psaki saying this is a success. You can't call it anything but a success. This huge airlift created by horrifically horrible, terrible, mind-bending planning or lack thereof in the implementation of a policy. It's like, oh, you just drop a bunch of, I saw this example given, you drop a bunch of kids into the ocean and then you scramble and get some boats to go save them and you want people to congratulate you for that effort. It's brazen. Saki is currently briefing at the White House right now live. Let's listen just briefly together. Thorough steps in order to process individuals and get them uh, moving through the system. Go ahead. Thank you, Jen. At the tail end of the president's remarks today about cybersecurity, he was asked about Afghanistan, and he made a I think joke. Peter asked him that question. The other Peter did, and he made a joke. So what's so funny? Well, I think the question he was asked, if I remember correctly, was about uh, when he will provide information about a decision on August 31st. I don't want to paraphrase the question, if that was an inaccurate description. That was roughly the question. We're up on a break, and he told the reporter, yeah, you'll be the first guy I call. A snarky joke. What's so funny, asks Peter Ducey. Good question, with Saki trying to spin it. Good luck. Back with Juan Williams after this. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We are back here on the Guy Benson Show. It is Wednesday. Thank you for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com. If you miss any part of the program, we have the podcast, which is free. Fox News alert as we move ahead here on the program today. The White House briefing is still underway. Jen Saki taking questions from reporters. We will get to our guest in just a moment, but let's listen together just to a little bit more of the 
press secretary at the White House responding to a flurry of questions on Afghanistan. Reiterate or add to, I suppose, is one, uh, we are going to continue to work with the United Nations and uh, ally, our allies and partners around the world to continue to provide humanitarian assistance and a range of assistance to Afghanistan, even when we don't have a presence on the ground. Uh, there are also uh, messages we've made clear to the Taliban, and I think that uh, Secretary Blinken also reiterated this about what our expectations are uh, and what the global community expects um, once we depart Afghanistan. I don't have additional details beyond that, but I will tell you that our commitment to uh, the incredibly brave uh, women uh, and leaders and uh, population in Afghanistan uh, that has fought alongside us, uh, that has uh, bravely stood up, uh, does not change, does not diminish uh, even after our military is departing. From okay. The I mean, of course it does. Of course it does. I mean, the, what, what, a, what an insulting thing to say. And I understand that she has to say this, and Blinken just said it. Their expectations have been set for the Taliban about what the Taliban will do and allow in terms of evacuations to continue. And Andrea Mitchell from NBC made the elementary point, same one that I made in the previous half hour here, the Taliban already is violating those expectations. They are already denying access. They are already detaining. They are already murdering, with our people still on the ground. Just the naivete involved to say, oh, well, we're going to set some expectations for the Taliban, and when we're completely gone, we will put pressure on them to abide by those expectations. They are already violating them. Now, with the evacuation underway, with U.S. troops still on the ground, Let's get to Juan Williams, Fox News analyst, columnist at The Hill. His most recent book is What the Hell Do You Have to Lose? Juan, welcome back. Pleasure to be with you guys. I see that you have a few new pieces up. I want to ask you about both of them. First, on Afghanistan, you are drawing connections back to Vietnam. And I wonder if you would just give us your overall thesis and some of your reflections on sort of an American military embarrassment decades ago in Southeast Asia and what we're seeing now in Afghanistan? Well, I think most of your listeners are well-informed as to what happened in Vietnam. Even if they're a little younger, they know that we went into Vietnam with the intent of stopping uh, the North Vietnamese, the communists, from taking over South Vietnam. And instead of having success there, we got locked into what was often referred to the word of that time, quagmire, uh, in which we really couldn't find our footing, couldn't really make progress, never felt that we were, in fact, winning in that war, despite the military telling us, oh, yeah, you know, things are going well. Oh, Mr. President, send us a few more troops. Give us more time. We'll turn this around. It never did turn around. It was really an awful situation. and We lost a tremendous amount of American life and resources and finally had to leave and left in way that uh, people remember to this day, pictures of helicopters, you know, desperately trying to get off the roof, people desperately trying to get onto those helicopters. And it's reminiscent now of uh, the kind of scenes we've seen as people trying to get out of Kabul. But uh, that is not, to me, you know, something that Americans have learned over the years. We've oftentimes thought that we could go in and engage, if not in nation building, at least in turning countries around 
Uh, and this Afghanistan adventure, 20 years, trillion dollars spent, 2,400, more than 2,400 Americans dead, is a reminder that we are very slow to learn our lesson. What do you think of the argument, Juan, that a number of people have made, including some of the guests here on the show, that mm -hmm. towards the end of this war, towards the end of this conflict in the last few years, U.S. combat deaths in Afghanistan have basically disappeared, zero in the last year and a half, roughly 2,500 men and women on the ground, a stabilizing force, a force that can go out uh, with information and strike against terrorists and at least prevent a complete takeover of, of the country from the Taliban, which of course now we've seen. Was that such a bad status quo over the last couple of years in particular? And does that parallel with Vietnam hold up? You know, Guy, I got to say, I, I, I am struck by the way that you frame this. To me, it's the framing holds up, and it's just unacceptable to me as an American that we would say, oh, yeah, it's okay for us to remain in what is a forever war. 20 years, Guy, 20 years, having spent that much money, having invested that much in terms of American life and blood, that we would continue to stay there. To me, I just don't understand it. I don't understand all this criticism of Biden. To me, Biden made the right decision. Other presidents were reluctant to leave because they understood that if by kicking the can down the road, they were preventing this kind of political static from taking place. But it, the fact is that we should have been gone long ago, and we should not have put those young people at risk. That was, that was uh, to me, shameful. And we are now, it seems to me, we should be celebrating the fact that we are leaving and that we have managed to evacuate so many people. Uh, this is a tremendous, tremendous moment in terms of America. I just don't understand it. I mean, no other country has made that commitment. Our goal there was to prevent the terrorists from using Afghanistan as a launching pad and to get Osama bin Laden. Both of those goals were long ago accomplished. And by the way, well, hang on, but the I, I but the out of frustration because you know it's like sixty four, sixty five percent of Americans say this: we should be out of Afghanistan. And yet, all I hear from the press, the American press, left and right, is criticism. I just I don't understand what is going on. Well, I think Juan, let me try to help you then, because I think I understand exactly what the criticism is. I am of mixed mind on the decision itself to get out the way that. Uh, the way that it's happening, and that's actually the, the separate question. The yes or no question, should we fully withdraw, which was the Trump policy and now the Biden policy, is broadly popular with the American people. Now, if you drill down and you ask people questions, is a small force to stabilize the country and to attack terrorists, the very terrorists that you were just describing, because we haven't had a spectacular terrorist attack against Americans uh, in, in 20 years after 9-11, and that's a huge uh, achievement by the many men and women who have been fighting them over there as opposed to over here. That was one of the lines that, of course, was used after 9-11. I think many mistakes have been made. Uh, if you ask people in polling, should we have left a small footprint to continue those operations against terrorists and to stabilize the country, especially if there are low to no U.S. casualties? The public opinion numbers shift around a little bit, but the fact is the a president... Little bit. Okay, let's, let's speak to that guy. Let's speak to that. The idea, and I think President Biden was so explicit in saying 
the longer that we stay there, the longer that you try to put American soldiers there, you put Americans at risk. The longer that you try to say, oh, we should stay beyond August 31st, that means that there's increased risk to Americans, and there's increased likelihood that then we would have to respond to any attack on Americans. And guess what? Then we're back at war in Afghanistan. That is a fool's gambit. If well, you were playing a game of chess, I would invite you to make that move. Part of the concern, Juan, is that if you abandon the country and the Taliban takes over, which has already happened, and then al-Qaeda, and we know that there's one estimate that I saw that al-Qaeda already has more operatives and fighters back in Afghanistan now than they did before 9-11, if we have no ability to strike at, uh, at al-Qaeda in that country or a, a mass reduced ability to do so, and it becomes another staging ground for terrorist planning and training, and there's, God forbid, another attack against us, and Americans get killed, I think you could see the calculus and the public opinion shift again. I'm not saying there are easy answers to this. I'm not even saying that Biden had the wrong decision, or Trump, for that matter, to say, we're going to get out of Afghanistan after all this time. Again, broadly speaking, I think most Americans agree with that. But let's turn to the way this is happening. I cannot imagine, Juan, that you have watched the last week and a half and you're looking at the new estimates about the time frame and the people we're going to be leaving behind and you believe that the policy that you clearly agree with is being executed in a competent manner. Do you? Yes, I do. And let me just wow. speak to this on, on a broader scale. Right now, since the end of July, I think it's close to like, 30,000 people or more who've been evacuated. I mean, that's a tremendous accomplishment. But let's, let's just speak to what you were saying about earlier. The idea that you're going to leave behind a force in Afghanistan. No, no, let's, no, Juan, I don't, actually, no, let me let's finish. No, you had but your I, but chance, I, guy. Let me finish. You had on the ground Americans for 20 years, despite the fact that we achieved our goal. We're not in Pakistan. You could see terrorists. They have been harbored in Pakistan. They have created their own terrorist networks inside Pakistan. We're not in Pakistan. Uh, we strike, we strike into Pakistan sometimes we're from, from Afghanistan. Saudi Arabia. Are we in Saudi Arabia to this moment guarding against more of the kind of radical Islam taking shape? No, we're not in Saudi Arabia. Well, we so actually do have troops in Saudi Arabia. Why are you out Afghanistan? It, it we do have, make we, sense, have to, we have troops in Saudi Arabia. One. We do not have troops acting against the government of Saudi Arabia, propping them up in order to say to them, you can't foment radical Islam. On the contrary, the Wahhabis, the people who attacked us on 9-11, continue to exist in Saudi yeah, Arabia. Look, I, I think that the projection of American power, the base from which we do so, where we choose to engage in this fight against radical Islam, which has not just gone away, we've just gotten a lot better at it, and we have been hugely successful in a lot of important ways. These are complicated policy questions, and I understand the arguments that you're making. I even agree with some of them. I really have trouble fathoming how you can look at the way that this is wrapping up, not the decision itself, but the execution of it, with thousands of people that we have promised. We promised them. They've helped us for 20 years. We promised them we're going to get them out. And intelligence and Pentagon officials are now basically conceding we're going to leave thousands of them behind. Some of them are already getting murdered. 
there are Americans that very well, the White House concedes, could be left behind because we're operating on this Taliban timeline. Juan, you can be all for American withdrawal from Afghanistan on that policy question. It's another matter to to celebrate the execution of this. And I, I'm just a little bit surprised, I guess, that you look at this and say it's a success. Well, so what I'm saying to you, Guy, is here's what I see. The United States set a frame for what we thought was possible on the understanding that we had invested so much in the Afghan military, Afghan police, and the Afghan government. What happened? Well, what happened is the Afghan military folded. What happened is the Afghan police folded. What happened is the Afghan leader fled his own country. These yeah, after we yanked the unbelievable the rug out from me, under them. They are evidence of incompetence and corruption within the Afghan people, not the so, United States, not the American okay, so, people who invested so much. But you want to blame the American people, and I think that's wrong. Well, no, I don't want to blame the American people. I want to blame the failed leadership of the American administration that what had people beg. If he, if uh, turn on your TV, one. Wanted, turn on your TV, one. Wanted us out in May. Biden has us out in August. It would have been a bad situation no matter when we left. I don't think it was going to be this bad. We could have done this in a much more orderly way. There were people begging the administration to start evacuations earlier, to actually have a process to make sure people were getting out over a period of time that did not happen. They assured us just a few weeks ago that the Taliban wasn't going to take over the country. Then they yanked the rug out from under the Afghan forces. And now they're pretending like, oh, well, it was always going to be this way. Juan, I, I just have to suspect if this exact meltdown with this terrible planning and sort of shocking lack of foresight in terms of... Uh, details or even broad strokes, if this were happening under a re-elected President Trump, I can't imagine you would look at it and say, I applaud this success. I'm on the record. I've been on the record actually since the, you know, about five years after we were there, after we had left Iraq, uh, saying, why are we in Afghanistan? What is going on? It makes no sense. You know what I think? I think that many people in sort of the military-industrial complex have made money off of this. And so for them, it was, yeah, let's just stay and, we'll, you know, we can make arguments. I'm but sure that's true. American life, oh, I'm no, sure that's true. American life well, and American treasure. I was agreeing with you, on <laughs> A waste of time. It's been a waste of time, and it's something well, that we should stop and we should celebrate that we have a president finally who's saying, let's get out. You're talking about, well, bad planning. Or we should have had a better execution. We had execution and plans, but we couldn't have anticipated the degree to which the Afghan government, the Afghan military, failed their own people. Well, we also we set them up for failure. The intelligence community actually was warning about this. We have been there for twenty years, supporting them and arming them. So now you're going to say, "Fair point." We failed them. I think they failed themselves. We are actively failing them right now. A lot of them. And it's completely unjust and unfair. And Juan, I agree with some of the points that you're making. I cannot even come close to agreeing with your endorsement of the way that your preferred policy is being carried out. And uh, look, I understand you're a fan of the president. You're a Democrat. There are Democrats on Capitol Hill who are horrified by this. 
and we're just going to have to really profoundly disagree on the execution side while I concede a number of your points on the policy side. Juan, we've got to leave it there. I'm already running late. Juan Williams, we'll get to your Eric Adams column perhaps later or next time. That New York City race, very interesting. Dynamics within your party. Uh, We'll continue that conversation perhaps when you're back next week or the week after. Juan, always appreciate it. Thank you, Guy. That's Juan Williams on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Back here on The Guy Benson Show, we went a little long there with Juan Williams. Tangling, I clearly object to a number of his points. He's entitled to those opinions, but... I am entitled to push back aggressively here on the show. I want to quickly get to a few other news items so we don't let them slide by. Number one, the U.S. intelligence community has put together an assessment of the question on the origins of the pandemic, the origins of COVID-19. There was the bat or wet lab theory. There was the lab leak theory. And the result of that inquiry and that look is inconclusive. So we don't have an answer there yet from the U.S. intelligence community. And of course, the Chinese government doesn't want us to have real answers there, which I think is quite telling. Also, the Supreme Court yesterday in a six to three vote, all six conservatives versus the three liberals, reversed the Biden policy of ending the remain in Mexico policy on immigration at the border, saying Biden exceeded his authority in reversing it That could actually help the Biden administration. If they put Remain in Mexico back in place, it might alleviate the crisis at the border a little bit with a Trump policy. Another hour coming up. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show, our middle hour, middle of the week as well. GuyBensonShow.com is our website, GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every day. Fox News Alert. The Dow ends up 37 points today, closing at 35,403. Also, record closes for both the NASDAQ and the S&P 500 today. Another Fox News alert as we are all over the news and various developments here on the show. John Kirby is the spokesman at the Pentagon. He is answering questions, it looks like, at the Pentagon with reporters present, although it appears that he just wrapped up the one thing, the poll quote that I saw from people who were watching the briefing over the last few minutes was that the Pentagon said that we should not assume that U.S. military personnel will have any role in evacuations from Afghanistan after August 31st, which, again, is not necessarily news. That's not surprising 
right? The whole purpose of this deadline, as set and demanded just recently by the Taliban and agreed to fully, basically, by the President of the United States operating along the Taliban's timeline, the purpose is to have every boot off the ground in terms of the U.S. military by the 31st of August. After which point, the White House and others, State Department, they can say whatever they want about urging the Taliban and working with partners and using diplomacy and anything else at their disposal. It's, of course, difficult when your embassy has been abandoned and your entire footprint is gone. Not just your military footprint. They, oh, yes, we're going to do our best to try to get people who are still stuck there out, thousands of them. Almost certainly are very likely some Americans and definitely a lot of Afghans who helped us. I think those words ring absolutely hollow because of that quote I just read to you from the Pentagon saying, yeah, we're not going to be involved. The military will not be involved in evacuations after the 31st. We learned that the Brits at the G7 conference the phone call yesterday, Boris Johnson, the Brits offered to take the lead on humanitarian flights, more evacuations after the 31st, if the U.S. would extend the deadline. And Biden said no. The G7 wanted an extended deadline. A lot of members of Congress on both sides wanted an extended deadline to get more evacuees out, betray fewer people. The Taliban said no, and then the next domino fell. Joe Biden our president, also said no, because the Taliban's timeline is America's timeline. That is the reality. The stark, shocking reality under this administration. We are joined now by Chris Christie, the 55th governor of the state of New Jersey. He was a two-term governor, a Republican governor. It's good to talk to you again. Great to be on, Guy. Thank you. Well, it looks increasingly dire and it appears that there is now a growing sense of resignation that in order to get everyone in the military out of afghanistan by the 31st the evacuation of civilians americans and otherwise will probably need to end friday maybe saturday at the latest is what the reports seem to be with the state department saying maybe up to 1500 We've heard higher numbers, 4,000, maybe more Americans still in Afghanistan now trying to get out. And thousands, if not tens of thousands of Afghans and their families who helped us, to whom we've made promises. It seems like many of those people are going to be left behind. And what we hear from the administration is this is a success. This airlift is amazing. We deserve plaudits for it. And some of their defenders, and we had one of them on last hour, Juan Williams, said it was always going to be bad. This couldn't have been planned any better. No one could have done a better job. That is apparently the line that they're going with, Governor, and I wonder what you think of it. Well, well, Juan it apparently sounds as out of it as the president sounds, if that's his evaluation. Look, this is, this is very difficult, but very simple, Guy. You remove all of the Americans and our Afghan allies before you remove anyone from the military. You keep Bagram Air Brace open. So you do not have to count exclusively on a commercial airport in Kabul 
to be able to evacuate these folks. And you have the full protection of the Bagram Air Air Base, along with our military manning it. All of that stuff is what should have been done. And you don't agree to this artificial timeline of August 31st um, if they're going to interfere. You tell them if they're going to interfere, it extends the deadline for us to remove our folks out of there. And if you interfere with any kind of lethal force, you will be met with lethal force times five. And yet, that's not at all what has happened. In fact, we're already pulling military assets out. The access points to the airport have been pinched off and closed, certainly to Afghans, some reports uh, to some Americans as well. And the Taliban yesterday turned its nose up at any notion of an extension. And almost immediately, the President of the United States, over the objections of Capitol Hill and our allies in London and Brussels and elsewhere, said, we're sticking with the plan, we're doing what the Taliban demands. I mean, I'm, I don't think I'm overstating that. You're not, Guy. And, and think about this for perspective for everyone who's listening. The president of France is tougher than the president of the United States. The president of France is more militarily aggressive than the president of the United States that we have in office right now. I didn't think I'd live long enough to see that. And that's what we're seeing. And look, this goes to something much bigger, though, Guy. Even though what's happening in Afghanistan is tragic, and I'm not trying to diminish it, this goes to the basic incompetence of the Biden administration and this president. And it undercuts everything Biden promised in the election. He was going to restore competence, in his view, to the White House. This is an incompetent administration led by an incompetent president, supported by a marginalized and incompetent vice president, and a staff that cares only about spreading liberalism um, throughout this country. And that's it, Guy. There's no other conclusion to come to. And really, in many respects, the country is going to turn out to have been fortunate that it's been displayed this early in the Biden administration so we can begin to take much more aggressive steps against this administration uh, with the midterms coming up in 2022. Well, you know, it's interesting because you mentioned what was promised in the campaign, and we were promised norms, right, the restoration of norms. And I'd say there are a number of examples where that has been very much not the case. For example, the president just ignoring a Supreme Court ruling on the eviction moratorium and saying Yes, I think I'm probably violating the Constitution, but it'll buy us some time. That is not a norm being upheld. He said that it would be the adults in the room. We would have, you know, competent, responsible people back in charge to restore our position in the world. America is back. And now we have our allies livid, fuming at us while they deny, the administration denies that there's, you know, any rancor or any problem whatsoever. It's like head in the sand, head in the sand, everything's fine. We're one big united happy family. We haven't heard any of this stuff, even though we've all seen it on our on our screens, because it's it's not happening in whisper diplomatic conversations. It's happening on television. It's happening in the House of Commons. We were also told that we were going to have an administration that was going to stand up to American adversaries like Russia and China and not kiss up to strongmen, well, Biden has gifted a huge geopolitical tactical win to Vladimir Putin through that 
pipeline. And then we learned late last night, Reuters reported that the Biden administration has now started to soften the U.S. position on Huawei, which is the Chinese-owned company on technology that the Trump administration correctly took a very hard line on. And now the Biden people seem to be rewarding China with a bit of a climb down on that. I'm just trying to figure out where all the restoration of norms and competent power and America being back on the world stage. Where Where is that? Because right now I'm struggling. It's nowhere because we have an incompetent president who has turned over his administration to the most progressive parts of his party. But worse, Guy, he's kept possession of foreign policy, which Robert Gates, as you know, said famously a number of years ago that Joe Biden hasn't gotten anything right in foreign policy in the last 40 years. And, and we're seeing it again on display here. And listen, you brought up the Chinese situation with Huawei. Um, that is a disaster. It is a disaster that, quite frankly, has much graver long-term ramifications than what's happening in Afghanistan right now. And it's Biden's inability, um, and quite frankly, the last administration's inability to deal with China that is putting us in an awful, awful circumstance. And that's something the American people... He's doing this stuff while we're distracted, quite frankly, by Afghanistan, which is an important issue, but not nearly as important as the relationship with China and how we're being taken advantage of. Well, but the, the common thread, the common thread, Governor, is weakness, just absolute weakness with Russia, with China in Afghanistan, with the Taliban. I mean, having the Taliban setting U.S. policy, even to the extent that we are going to get completely out of their before even all of the Americans are evacuated, is astounding. Then you've got the sort of the the public rhetoric on this, the messaging strategy. You were governor of New Jersey for eight years. You ran for president. You understand messaging and crisis messaging. Today, the president had an event at the White House. He took no questions again. Someone shouted a question at him in his response, and it was about the deadline in Afghanistan, August 31st. He sort of smirked and said to the reporter, you'll be the first guy I call. This is a very flippant, snarky response, and then he took no questions there. We have the press secretary saying, don't you dare call anyone stranded in Afghanistan. No one is stranded in Afghanistan. And then yesterday insisting that we should, in fact, applaud the administration for their success. She said, you can't call this airlift anything other than a success. The vice president was over in Asia, and she was touting the successful abandonment of the U.S. embassy in Kabul, just weeks after the secretary of state said it was going to remain open and operational. I just wonder, as someone who's been in the game at high levels, setting aside the policy, and I think you and I agree, there are huge failures in the execution of this policy. What about the way that they're trying to defend and talk about the policy and the failures. Well, look, Jen Psaki has now, after her performance the other day on the stranded word, has now entered herself into the Mike McCurry, Ron Ziegler Hall of Fame of, of lying press secretaries. And there's no other way to conclude that. But she's just flat out lying to the American people. And she must be doing so, if not at the instruction of the president of the United States, with the permission of the president of the United States. And what this is doing is sending an awful message around the world, as you know, and an awful message to our military, 
and 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 I will tell you that my one of my son's best friends um, is a member of the army and has had a number of tours in Afghanistan, um, helped to protect Kandahar. And, and I sit here today thinking to myself, what does he think about what's being done now with the sacrifices that he and the men and women he served with have made? All of these communications that are going on now are sending the message that we don't care. We don't care about the sacrifices that were made there. And I will tell you, too, Guy, as someone who was nominated U.S. attorney on September 10th, 2001, the idea that all this is going on just weeks before the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and that we're going to allow Afghanistan to once again become a staging ground for radical Islamic terrorism, it sickens me. And it is a disgrace to all those people who lost their lives on 9-11 and the men and women who lost their lives fighting back after that attack 20 years ago. Yeah, and as we try to get Americans and our Afghan allies who helped us there for 20 years out, they, at the White House and the administration, they say, well, we are not going to be doing any of that with our military personnel after the 31st. And we're going to try to hope that the Taliban lives, you know, lives up to our expectations after that, into September and beyond, while the Taliban is already actively not living up to those expectations, defying them directly through detainments and murders already. Disgrace is a word that you use that comes to mind for me as well. Chris Christie, former governor of New Jersey. Governor, we appreciate it. Guy, thank you very much. We'll be right back. A fresh take on the biggest stories of the day. It's Guy Benson. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We're back here on The Guy Benson Show. Earlier in the week, we did cover albeit somewhat briefly, the resignation of Governor Andrew Cuomo in New York. He stepped aside at midnight on Tuesday. I think somewhere Janice Dean raised a glass, and he is out. And the indignities have continued for him since departing. His precious Emmy Award that he won for those live-filled press conferences, or at least in furtherance of a narrative that was rooted in a lie, his supposed amazing amazing handling of COVID in New York State, that Emmy has been stripped. It has been rescinded from the governor. So now he's jobless and Emmyless. And then today, Kathy Hochul, who is the new governor, she was lieutenant governor under Cuomo, she has now acknowledged nearly 12,000 more COVID deaths in New York. And the state count has jumped by nearly 12,000 deaths to match the CDC numbers. The Cuomo administration was undercounting COVID deaths in New York by 12,000. And his successor is saying, we're not playing these games anymore. Here's the real number. With the fatality roster increasing, 12,000, it's astounding. It's astounding. But it goes to show you that not only 
was Cuomo lying about nursing home deaths in New York State and covering those up, changing the way that those were counted, that whole side of the story. And I think that was to cover up his failed policy that got a lot of people killed, or at least increase the likelihood that thousands of vulnerable seniors were going to die. He also, and his administration also, massively undercounted the overall death total in the state of New York. While people are out there accusing Republicans, Ron DeSantis, of doing that, that's actually what happened in New York. And now there's a new governor who's acknowledging the reality and not cooking the books and not lying about it. 12,000 new deaths added to the death toll in New York State. One of his last acts, by the way, Governor Cuomo, on his way out the door was to grant clemency to a convicted murderer and terrorist involved in the death of three people, including two cops, a left-wing terrorist whose son now, by the way, is the district attorney in San Francisco, the pro-crime district attorney in San Francisco. What a way to go out for Andrew Cuomo. It feels almost fitting. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. GuyBensonShow.com. Back here on the show, halfway through the program today. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. I want to return to the issue of masking children in schools and the mandates to mask children in schools. And you might be thinking to yourself, why do you continue to beat this drum? And I'll admit, as I've said before, this is not my number one issue. I would much rather have kids in masks in schools than not in schools like we saw last year in so many parts of the country. You had millions upon millions of children across the United States, particularly in bluer states, in bluer cities, run by Democrats and their allies in the teachers' unions, sitting at home, suffering, falling behind, and failing with so-called virtual or distance learning. There is so much data now on what a failure that was. And so that is sort of the worst-case scenario. And it looks like we're going to avoid it in most or all parts of the country this year, because at long last, perhaps we've actually learned that lesson, that we cannot inflict this kind of harm on children again like we saw so many places last year. Although I will also point this out. The people who were loudest screaming about how anti-child and anti-science people like Ron DeSantis in Florida were last year to have the schools open. He said, we're mandating it. Your schools are open in the state of Florida. People said kids are going to die, massive outbreaks are coming, you're going to have all this suffering and death. Anti-science, anti-child, Ron DeSantis. And it turned out on that really big question, I mean, when leaders are confronted with questions, sometimes they're very small and the decisions don't have a lot of ripple effects. Sometimes they are governing, defining decisions. And I would argue that the decision whether or not to open schools last year was a governing, defining decision. And whether you hate him or love him or anywhere in between, DeSantis got that big call right. And the people yelling about Ron DeSantis killing children, being anti-science last year, for having the beaches open, for example, for having schools open, they were wrong. They were wrong and he was right. And yet the same people are now saying the exact same things about DeSantis and other Republican governor's decisions not to allow 
universal mandates for masks in schools for kids. Same talking points, same absolute certitude, same righteousness, or I should say self-righteousness, and it's as if they didn't get everything on this front disastrously wrong last year. It's like they moved right along from that failure, that harm that they did to children all across the country. It's like they don't learn. I'm not saying that DeSantis or Greg Abbott or Doug Ducey or any of these governors, Kim Reynolds, that they're doing things perfectly or that I agree with every decision that they make. I'm not saying that. But on that big question last year, DeSantis was right. The other crowd was wrong. Now the other crowd is just warming up in the microwave the exact same calumnies and opprobrium. The reason that I want to talk about masking and mask mandates in particular in schools, again, is not because it's like the the number one issue on which I'm fixated. To me, it's a proxy. It's a proxy fight about whether or not data and actual science and evidence truly matters or not. That's why I think I'm so invested in the issue. Like if I had a kid and they were going into school, I don't think I'd be one of the parents going to the school board and popping off about masking but i would certainly like a choice an option for my child based on a parent's decision about whether or not my child would need a mask in school because there are lots of kids who are actually hurt there are downsides major downsides in some cases to them wearing masks and a number of doctors have written about that including doctors we've had here on the show i think having the option makes sense but for the people and there's many of them and it's almost everyone in the media For the people who say it is, here we go again, anti-science, anti-child, to not require masks for all children in schools, my concern, and I think it's well-founded, is evidence and real science do not matter. It is a made-up science. It is a fiction. It is a superstition. The superstition, deeply ingrained, is masks on kids save lives, and therefore they should be required in schools. That's what the good people think. And anyone who suggests that the good people may not have the evidence on their side, well, they are just bad people, especially if they are Republican bad people. So as we've noted before, the U.K. has had no masks required in schools for months now. This was true during their Delta wave. Their kids weathered it fine. As we mentioned last week, the European Union CDC came out with their recommendation against masking children in schools 12 and under. That is their policy based on their data and their experience. It has worked well. But Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott and these other governors, they're evil. They're reckless. They're playing politics. They hate science. So on the program last week when we talked about this, I asked rhetorically for the brigade yelling about mask mandates as if they are the obviously correct scientifically sound, life-saving policy that they claim, would they attack the British government, the Europeans, as being anti-science and anti-child? Or is that accusation or allegation reserved only for domestic political opponents? So that was a rhetorical question. It became a non-rhetorical question when I put it to a Democratic strategist called Ethan Behrman. He was on the panel when I was filling in for Kennedy. I teed up the question. And I'm just impressed to some extent, and I'm almost impressed to some extent, how fanatically fixated and committed he is to the talking point that he will just blithely answer why, yes, everyone 
who's making these decisions based on data or experience or what have you, they're all anti-science. They're all anti-child. And it doesn't matter if he doesn't have data because the data he tried to cite was not applicable to the situation of children in schools wearing masks. So we had a bit of a fiery or contested exchange. I want you to listen to it. Cut 15. The UK is not requiring masks in schools. They've been fine during Delta. The EU CDC not recommending masks in schools for kids under 12. Are they also anti-science, anti-child, or is that just Republicans, Ethan? 30 seconds. Uh, yes, all of the above. And you're ignoring <laughs> the basic science. The preponderance of literature is clear. No, it's not. That masks reduce transmission 70 to 89 percent among children in schools, Ethan. I mean, you're wrong, Absolutely though. let me finish, Guy. No, so here's information. Kids are dying, and look at what's happening in Mississippi. A tsunami of cases because of choice. Our our founding father said, you don't need choice on this issue. Public health is more important than your individual choice. I I support public health, and I also support data. Panel, we're up on a hard break. we got to go. Jamie, Dave, Ethan, they're going to keep talking, and we'll be right back. He just kept going. He was citing one study on massing in general, which has been called into question by some. But adults versus children in schools, these are different issues. And as we have repeatedly demonstrated here using actual data or lack thereof, actually, there is no strong. He said, oh, it's very clear what the data shows. No, it's not. Not on children masking in schools. We have no good data, as a matter of fact, proving that masking kids in schools for eight hours a day or whatever is effective at all. And there are indications that there are downsides that could outweigh or overshadow any potential minuscule hypothetical benefit, which is why the Europeans and the Brits made the call that they did. And that call has played out well with the actual outcomes. But Ethan, speaking for many leftists and so-called progressives, just says, oh, yeah, no, they're all anti-science. Even though he doesn't have the science, I'm not picking on him specifically. He's just sort of representing a lot of people, especially at the elite level and in the media. He just believes the superstition. He wants to believe in his heart that the science is there and therefore they're pro-science. And his very emotional thing that he said was, well, children are dying. The reality is children are not dying from COVID. Not here, not over there. Does that mean that there are zero? No. There are between three and 400 kids in America over the last year and a half who have died of COVID or with COVID. And if you look at how the UK actually did a deep dive in their data and dug a little bit further the percentage of kids who died with COVID who actually died of COVID because of COVID was even smaller. It was in the double digits total in the UK. In the US let's say it's 200. Let's just say it's all of them. 300, 350, something like that. That's over a year and a half. Did you know in July of this year 12 Americans aged 0 to 17, 12, died with COVID, deaths involving COVID, 12. A year prior, July 2020, the number was 29. So it went down from 29 child deaths with COVID last July to 12 this July in a country that has 75 million children.
to just yell and scream, children are dying, in order to back up a policy that could have significant unintended consequences for children without strong evidence at all that the intended positive consequence actually exists or works, that is not making a case. That is shrieking and fear-mongering. More kids are dying of the flu during this time period than of COVID. The flu. We do not mask children during flu season in every school in America. More kids drowned to death in the United States during the pandemic than died of COVID. We do not ban lakes or oceans or swimming pools. We have to have some degree of rationality based on actual data. Which brings me to this story from New York Magazine, which is absolutely not a right-wing outfit. David Zwieg wrote this piece. New York Magazine is a lefty magazine. He tried to get to the bottom of this. He tried to get to the truth. Does masking children, especially younger children in schools, does it work? And here's part of what he writes. Quote, many of America's peer nations around the world, including the UK, Ireland, all of Scandinavia, France, the Netherlands, Switzerland, and Italy, have exempted kids with varying age cutoffs from wearing masks in classrooms. Conspicuously, there's no evidence of more outbreaks in the schools in those countries relative to schools in the United States where the majority of kids wore masks for an entire academic year. And I would note a lot of other kids weren't in school at all. So we had kids in other countries in school without masks with no statistical difference in outbreaks or bad outcomes compared to American kids, some of whom, millions of whom, were sitting at home, languishing at home. But for those who were in school and wearing masks, they were not better off statistically than the kids not wearing masks in our so-called peer nations, is the way that he puts this in New York Magazine. These countries, along with the World Health Organization, this is New York Magazine, whose child masking guidance differs substantially from the CDC's recommendations, have explicitly recognized that the decision to mask students carries with it potential academic and social harms for children and may lack a clear benefit. To date, the highly transmissible Delta variant has not led them to change this calculus. Many experts I spoke with told me that while the Delta variant represents a major and concerning new development in the COVID pandemic, it probably should not change our thinking on a mask requirement for schools. He goes on and says that he reached out to the CDC here in the U.S. and the American Academy of Pediatrics, which is all in for masking in schools to the point that they are memory-holing some of their own research on the importance of facial recognition and that sort of thing for child development. They've actually taken at least one study down off of their website, which is creepy and Orwellian. This reporter at New York Magazine reached out to CDC and AAP and said, if you're so convinced that children three and up have to wear masks in schools, please show us evidence. Quote, the AAP did not respond to multiple requests. The CDC press office replied that since children under 12 cannot be vaccinated, the agency recommends schools do universal masking and included links to unrelated materials on vaccines and a recent outbreak among adults. They don't have the goods. They don't have the data to share. And this piece in New York Magazine, and I've quoted at townhall.com a number of the excerpts, quotes doctors and public health officials, both on the record and on background, because they don't want to anger their colleagues who are on the superstition side of this, talking about the dearth of evidence that supports masking young children in schools 
and raising concerns about the negative impacts that masks actually could have on those kids. One doctor said, quote, I'm not aware of any studies that show conclusively that kids wearing masks in schools has any effect on their own morbidity or mortality or on the hospitalization or death rate in the community around them. That seems like it should be significant, does it not? Evidence and data have to matter. And if we are just pretending that we know what the evidence is without having to produce it, even with counterexamples around the world and just blocking that out like it completely doesn't exist, that suggests strongly that this is not about science at all. It's about safetyism. It's about feelings. It's about emotions. And I fear in many cases it is about politics. And the school children of America should not be political pawns for adults seeking to score points by pretending that they support science while not actually rigorously looking at the science. And the media is complicit if they're not asking these questions and asking them seriously. That's why I care about this issue the way that I do. Not because I'm so committed to the idea that no child should ever wear a mask in schools. No. But the data and the evidence have to matter. And I guess if it means ignoring or throwing the Europeans under the bus based on their outcomes, so long as you can score points against some Republicans you hate, oh, so be it. Science, right? Is that science? We'll step aside. We'll come back on The Guy Benson Show. A fresh take on the biggest stories of the day. It's Guy Benson. Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. Back here on The Guy Benson Show, one other thought on COVID and people losing their minds. If you're a regular listener, you know that I love Australia. I love the Australian people. I have family down there. I've been to Australia multiple times, including on my honeymoon. I am so sad to see what's happening in Australia with COVID. It is true that they have very few cases, very few deaths, certainly compared to the United States. Their government is trying to basically eradicate COVID completely. They're on an island. They're extremely strict on people coming and going from Australia. They've been behind the curve on vaccines, and they've just had lockdowns, especially in their large states and cities, for months and months and months on end, arresting people just for going outside, for like having a drink outside. It's crazy what's happening, what their rules are. And people are starting to rebel. There have been protests and riots. There's this story. A local government in the state of New South Wales, Australia, facing criticism after reports that they ordered 15 dogs killed to prevent the spread of COVID-19. They shot and killed 15 dogs so that volunteers at surrounding shelters wouldn't travel to come pick up the animals and care for them. So rather than allowing people to get in their car and go drive and pick up a dog, because that's a threat apparently with COVID, they just killed the dogs. It is insane. You cannot eradicate an airborne endemic illness. And I just feel like they've lost their minds down there on some of this stuff. Like at what point does your brain say, oh yes, the solution to this is let's kill all these dogs. It's actually pretty terrifying. I'm not saying any government has done this perfectly, but that cannot be the right way to handle this. As a dog lover, I refuse to accept that. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up. Don't go anywhere. 
Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. It's five o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Final hour here on the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thanks for listening. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time every weekday. GuyBensonShow.com. That's the website. Podcast always free. Catch me on Shannon Bream Show tonight on Fox News Channel in the midnight hour. Looking forward to joining Shannon as always. This final hour here on the Guy Benson Show, sponsored by our friends at the Finnish Long Drink, which is a fantastic product that I love. TheLongDrink.com for all the information there, including where it may be sold near you. They're expanding. Hugely popular. You can also order online. TheLongDrink.com, 21 plus only, please, and always drink responsibly. We now welcome back to the show U.S. Senator Joni Ernst, Republican of Iowa, just reelected last year. And, Senator, it's good to have you back. Oh, it's great to be with you, Guy. Thank you so much. I want to ask you first about a report that we've seen from a number of journalists that there was a briefing given to congressional staffers today in which the Biden administration said that they are aware of more than 4,000 American citizens still actively seeking to get out of Afghanistan. More than 4,000. My guess would be that the real number is even higher because there are some people who keep telling folks that they can't get in touch through official channels. What is your reaction to that scenario? Because it looks like the evacuations might be stopping in a matter of days before the full withdrawal of the military begins in Afghanistan. Is that 4,000 number in the ballpark of what you're hearing, or is there a bigger picture here as well? Well, Guy, and this is heartbreaking right now to hear of these stories, to see the images on on television, and to know that with uh, President Biden winding down these evacuation efforts, that we may be leaving Americans behind. And he does not seem to be compassionate or caring about these American families whose loved ones are stranded in Afghanistan. And on top of that, of course, all of our Afghan partners and allies that have given so much in the global war on terror. So this is horrifying to me. And yes, those are the same numbers that I'm hearing. Um, Now, yesterday, we heard from the administration that there would be maybe between 10 and 15,000 Americans that possibly are remaining in Afghanistan. So that could be on target with that 4,000 number. We've had a number of American citizens that have been evacuated over the last day. Um, But it's very disconcerting to think that we do have Americans that are reaching out through members of Congress's offices. They're not able to reach through the official channels to notify the United States government that they're still there and they're not able to get through the checkpoints. Are you hearing from those people? 
I have not heard from American citizens. Um, I checked in last night with um, my staff, and so far, all of the Iowans that we have been tracking have been evacuated. Th- okay. Those are the ones that were in touch with my office. But I am still hearing from, like, our Iowa National Guardsmen that had interpreters. They can't get through to the airport. So, again, I'm just, I'm very afraid that we are overlooking numbers of Americans, and they won't be able to be safely evacuated. Well, and it feels like the White House is already setting up for that possibility, right? Just a few days ago, the spokeswoman for the president chided our colleague at Fox News here, Peter Doocy, for using the word stranded. And then the next day, yesterday, she said there actually is a chance that some Americans will be left behind. She said she didn't want to get into that any further. And then, as you point out very correctly, Senator, there are the thousands and probably tens of thousands now of Afghans who assisted us over these last 20 years, who put their lives on the line, who put their families' lives on the line, and to whom we made collectively a blood oath that we were going to keep them safe. And now with the Taliban taking back over, and there are reports of them murdering collaborators already, And God knows what's going to happen once our military is completely gone. I want to read to you quotes from President Biden. In June, speaking of these Afghans, interpreters and other people on the ground, drivers, that sort of thing, quote, they're going to come. Those who helped us are not going to be left behind. That was the president in June. Then on Friday, the Associated Press, President Joe Biden pledged firmly Friday to bring all Americans home from Afghanistan and all Afghans who aided the war effort, too. Quote, we're making the same commitment, end quote, to Afghan wartime helpers as to U.S. citizens, Biden said. He called the Afghan allies, quote, equally important in the evacuations. That was June, Senator. That was last week, Senator. And now it appears that there's a growing consensus on both sides of the aisle, experts, people on the ground, military leaders, intelligence officials, that we are going to, in fact, betray that promise on a vast scale. Yes, and this is this is one of the largest debacles that we have seen in foreign policy over the past two decades. And this is all on President Biden's shoulders, every last bit of it. Um, one, if we leave an American behind who wants to leave Afghanistan, shame on this president. I know that many months ago, uh, the State Department started pushing out the message that uh, American citizens should start evacuating from Afghanistan. But But they did this with the promise that the embassy would stay open. Consular activities would be available. We're going to keep 650 Marines on the ground. And then what did the administration do? They pulled the rug out from under. These American citizens that have been working as contractors, they have been working with various charitable organizations. They are family members that uh, have family members that live in Afghanistan. And the administration pulled all of that support away from them. And so I don't doubt that there are Americans that cannot get through these checkpoints. They're being turned back. I am extremely worried. I'm hearing from all of my veteran friends that we cannot leave an American behind. And we certainly shouldn't be leaving our allies behind as well. I feel that, too. This is sickening. Especially because we promised them. We promised them in the most solemn way about the most important thing one could ever promise anyone anything. 
And that's what I think is so upsetting. And you make such an important point, and I'm really glad that you brought this up, Senator Ernst, because I have now seen it's one of the talking points, and I'm sort of astounded that this is emerging as one of the talking points from people who are defending the Biden policy here and the Biden execution here on social media. They're saying, oh, well, the warnings to start getting out of the country have been happening now for months. So what are these people still doing there? Almost like they're at fault. If they get stranded, it's they have no one to blame but themselves, like they asked for it, which is an unbelievably heartless thing to put into the world right now and to sort of frame this issue in that manner. But the president, while the State Department was putting out bulletins saying, hey, you might want to start getting out of here, the president was going on national television and saying, we're confident this is going to go well. The likelihood that the Taliban is just going to take over the country is, quote, highly unlikely. As you stated, the Secretary of State went on national television repeatedly and said, oh, we're going to have a robust diplomatic presence and a diplomatic effort. We're going to have an active embassy. That is what they were telling us as recently as a few weeks ago in July. So to then point the finger at anyone who took, perhaps foolishly in retrospect, but took our government, our president, our Secretary of State at their word about having a bare minimum support system in Afghanistan, at least until you know, September 11th and beyond, I think it is a grossly unfair and callous thing to attack those people and blame them for the ordeal in which they have been left by this administration. Absolutely. We are their United States government. We are the ones that should ensure that they get out of Afghanistan safely. I don't care how long it takes us to get every last American out of Afghanistan. I don't care what the Taliban thinks about that. There are measures that we can take to keep the Taliban in check as we are safely evacuating American citizens. And we should be using every authority that we have, whether that's expanding the perimeter around the airport, whether it's sending convoys out, whether it is utilizing American aircraft to go retrieve uh, these individuals, whatever it takes, we should be using all measures. Well, we're actually, but we're doing the opposite, right? We're doing the opposite. We're we're already withdrawing troops. And my concern here is, as you start to read the reports, it looks like it might be Friday, the last day that they'll be doing active evacuations, because at some point the military has to turn inward and make sure that they can get themselves out. That's what the deadline is for next Tuesday. So I can only imagine the degree of desperation on the ground right now for Americans, thousands of them that we know of who are trying to get out, and the untold thousands of Afghans who we promised an exit from this country. They are at the airport gates. They are waving their papers. They are begging to get in, and they are not being let in. And there are photographs, Senator, of large airplanes now taking off from Afghanistan, from the Kabul airport, almost completely empty because it's down to a tiny trickle, apparently, of people that we and the Taliban in this very weird alliance are letting through. I'll give you the last word, Senator. Right. Yes, uh, we have to ensure that our citizens get out of Afghanistan safely. We have to make sure we are honoring our commitment to those that have participated with us, alongside us in the global war on terror. And lastly, I am going to point out one thing that has been glaringly lacking from the president's briefings, and that is his thanks to the men and women in uniform who have fought for 20 years in the global war on terror. 
what he is doing is diminishing the significance and the impact that they have given to our great United States for their service to our country by protecting our homeland, by taking the fight to the terrorists. That man, our president, needs to make it very clear that these men and women have served honorably, and what they did was for the service of our country. And kept us safe from major terrorist attacks for two decades, which is no small feat. Perhaps he could be asked about some of that if he took questions, which he is doing extremely rarely in the middle of this historic fiasco over which he's presiding. It is a very, very embarrassing and angering ordeal to be watching, and I can't even imagine how it must feel to actually be there, that desperation that I referenced earlier. Senator Joni Ernst, Republican, Iowa, veteran of the U.S. military. Senator, we always appreciate your time. Thank you. God bless you. Thanks so much. We will step aside, take a break, and be right back. It's The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show, and we have to take a brief break from the stream of negative news and serious issues and get a little bit frivolous from time to time. I think our brains, our souls need a respite because this stuff, these news cycles have been relentless. And therefore, let us conduct our annual segment here on The Guy Benson Show in which we yell at each other about pumpkin spice stupidity and the premature arrival of a fall phenomenon that keeps encroaching into the summer. So producer Christine, of course, being as basic as they come in some respects, and I say that with love, she is a big pumpkin spice chick. I'm sure you'll be shocked if you're new to the program. So she can't get enough of it, and she, in her mind, believes that it's time for the fall. She's already indulging in pumpkin spice. She, in fact, is already going to be decorating her house for autumn this weekend ahead of Labor Day weekend which is at least the very end of summer Christine I know this is your stick every year and you do this because you like it and you believe it but do you feel any shame at all trying to pretend that August is an appropriate time to do autumnal things no I have no shame at all and I'm the most basic person you know. I highly doubt that. Um, I would say on pumpkin spice, you are the queen of basic. What, what, what does that mean? Because I love pumpkin spice. I love the fall. I mean. It's my favorite season, Christine, but we're not in it yet. I love yeah, the fall. We're so close. We're, but, but you can look forward to fall. It doesn't mean that the fall is here. It's like looking around in April or May when you get some sun and say, well, summer is right around the corner. I love summer. You need to just live in the moment and endure or appreciate the seasons in which you are currently existing and not pretend that the borders – I mean – you are like the Biden administration on our southern border. There's just no security there, right? It's, people can just bleed right through with the summer just 
flowing into the fall freely with no security. That's the comparison that I'm going to make, even though it's really tortured. But you tell me you're walking through the supermarket and you see Thomas English muffins, pumpkin spice, and you're not going to go buy it with the Philly cream cheese pumpkin spice? Absolutely not. not. You're just going to walk right by that. Well, I don't really like English muffins or those types of breakfast foods to begin with, so I wouldn't get them even if we were in the middle of October or early November because it's just not my okay, taste. What about, what about cup of noodles, pumpkin spice? No, nothing pumpkin spice. The only pumpkin thing that I will remotely eat would be, well, two things. Pumpkin pie just occasionally around Thanksgiving, and that's it, and pumpkin ice cream, which is a fall-only flavor, and it's really good, but if you said, hey, guy, let's go get some pumpkin ice cream in August, I would say absolutely not. Okay, well, what if you and I were going to have lunch together, you know, a a brought-from-home lunch, and I pull out my um, Greek yogurt, pumpkin spice, you're not going to look over and be like, Christine, I'll trade you? No, I of course would not. I of course would not. Here's a question, because you last week, last week you went on your rampage against leftovers. Would you eat pumpkin spice-related leftovers? Is that how obsessed you are? No. I mean, come on. (laughs) Absolutely not. I had to make sure, by the way, that I ate almost my whole dinner Saturday night out, because my husband listened to Home Stretch and then said to me, any of this food that you don't eat, you're eating tomorrow. He's like, I have to see it happen now. You have to eat leftovers. Good. So, this is. I'm, I'm sure glad. He- I'm glad that this show is making a real difference in the world, including in your marriage. <laughs> I I do not reject or begrudge your enjoyment of pumpkin spice things, even though I don't it's share. So good. That it's enjoyment. So good. I'm offended by the early arrival of everything. Like they they have Halloween candy that starts getting sold. After Labor Day, Christmas carols in November, sometimes earlier, oh, it's out of control. I and I feel it. like it all begins with pumpkin spice in July and August. Quickly, quiet, Wyatt, at your favorite coffee shop, they've got a special summer flavor that I'm actually interested in, right? Yes, because, you know, it's actually still summer right now. Yes, yes. So they have a new flavor, limited edition, which I haven't been able to get my hands on yet. It's blueberry pie cold brew coffee i love blueberries i love blueberry pie it's a very summer thing now that i would be interested in maybe a little iced coffee special blueberry pie flavored whatever sign me up for that because it's august let's get that memo just a a calendar maybe to producer christine it is not time for pumpkin spice nope absolutely not we're up on a break christine And I just have to say, of all your wrong takes, this is so wrong that we deal with it every single year. And I know that we'll have the exact same fight next year. And that's fine. You'll still be wrong. It's The Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com Happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. Earlier in the program, we welcomed back Governor Chris Christie, former New Jersey governor, a Republican, a regular here on the show, a friend of the program. He had a lot to say about leadership and crisis communications. Here's part of that conversation as we assess the disaster in Afghanistan. Well, it looks increasingly dire, and it appears that there is now a growing sense of resignation that in order to get everyone in the military 
out of Afghanistan by the 31st, the evacuation of civilians, Americans and otherwise, will probably need to end Friday, maybe Saturday at the latest, is what the reports seem to be, with the State Department saying maybe up to 1,500. We've heard higher numbers, 4,000, maybe more Americans still in Afghanistan now trying to get out, and thousands, if not tens of thousands of Afghans and their families who helped us, to whom we've made promises. It seems like many of those people are going to be left behind. And what we hear from the administration is this is a success. This airlift is amazing. We deserve plaudits for it. And some of their defenders, and we had one of them on last hour, Juan Williams, said it was always going to be bad. This couldn't have been planned any better. No one could have done a better job. That is apparently the line that they're going with, Governor, and I wonder what you think of it. Well, well, Juan apparently sounds as out of it as the president sounds, if that's his evaluation. Look, this is, this is very difficult, but very simple, Guy. You remove all of the Americans and our Afghan allies before you remove anyone from the military. You keep Bagram Air Brace open. So you do not have to count exclusively on a commercial airport in Kabul to be able to evacuate these folks. And you have the full protection of the Bagram Air Air Base, along with our military manning it. All of that stuff is what should have been done. And you don't agree to this artificial timeline of August 31st um, if they're going to interfere. You tell them if they're going to interfere, it extends the deadline for us to remove our folks out of there. And if you interfere with any kind of lethal force, you will be met with lethal force times five. And yet... That's not at all what has happened. In fact, we're already pulling military assets out. The access points to the airport have been pinched off and closed, certainly to Afghans, some reports uh, to some Americans as well. And the Taliban yesterday turned its nose up at any notion of an extension. And almost immediately, the President of the United States, over the objections of Capitol Hill and our allies in London and Brussels and elsewhere, said, we're sticking with the plan, we're doing what the Taliban demands. I mean, I'm, I don't think I'm overstating that. You're not, Guy. And, and think about this for perspective for everyone who's listening. The president of France is tougher than the president of the United States. The president of France is more militarily aggressive than the president of the United States that we have in office right now. I didn't think I'd live long enough to see that. And that's what we're seeing. And look, this goes to something much bigger, though, Guy, even though what's happening in Afghanistan is tragic, and I'm not trying to diminish it. This goes to the basic incompetence of the Biden administration and this president. And it undercuts everything Biden promised in the election. He was going to restore competence, in his view, to the White House. This is an incompetent administration led by an incompetent president supported by a marginalized and incompetent vice president and a staff that cares only about spreading liberalism um, throughout this country. And that's it, Guy. There's no other conclusion to come to. And really, in many respects, the country is going to turn out to have been fortunate that it's been displayed this early in the Biden administration so we can begin to take much more aggressive steps against this administration 
uh, with the midterms coming up in 2022. Well, you know, it's interesting because you mentioned what was promised in the campaign, and we were promised norms, right, the restoration of norms. And I'd say there are a number of examples where that has been very much not the case. For example, the president just ignoring a Supreme Court ruling on the eviction moratorium and saying, yes, I think I'm probably violating the Constitution, but it'll buy us some time. That is not a norm being upheld. He said that it would be the adults in the room. We would have, you know, competent, responsible people back in charge to restore our position in the world. America is back. And now we have our allies livid, fuming at us while they deny, the administration denies that there's, you know, any rancor or any problem whatsoever. It's like head in the stand, head in the sand, everything's fine. We're one big united happy family. We haven't heard any of this stuff, even though we've all seen it on our on our screens, because it's it's not happening in whisper diplomatic conversations, it's happening on television, it's happening in the House of Commons. We were also told that we were going to have an administration that was going to stand up to American adversaries like Russia and China and not kiss up to strongmen. Well, Biden has gifted a huge geopolitical tactical win to Vladimir Putin through that pipeline. The full Christie interview available at GuyBensonShow.com on that free podcast every day. No charge to you on demand. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or the many avenues where people get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, a few disputes that are apparently typical in households. A strange poll about showering, and do you have a favorite spot on the couch? Does that cause any tension? We will lighten things up, which we really need to do when we come back. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. And in this happy hour, we've sort of alternated between very serious and not so serious. And because it's the home stretch, we'll toggle to not so serious, as we typically do. And if you missed any of today's show, you can go to the website, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free. FoxNewsPodcast.com, also an option, or anywhere you get your podcasts. So let's talk about two issues, and they involve preferences at home. And I found each of these stories to be actually rather interesting. Let's start with this one. There was a poll, and truly I would like to know who decides when to poll things like this. Is there a pollster meeting where they sit around and maybe have some adult beverages and mama's juice and start writing down on a big whiteboard some crazy ideas about polls just to see what might generate attention? I, I don't know. But YouGov, which is a huge pollster out of the UK, they polled respondents on this question, which way do you face in the shower? Towards the shower or away from the shower? So you're standing in the shower. There's the shower head. Now, if you have one of those rainfall shower things, then there's no right answer or wrong answer to this because the water comes directly down onto you. And that's fancy schmancy. I would love one of those. One of my buddies has one in his house in their guest suite, and I cannot get enough of that rainfall shower. But I think most people have a shower head that protrudes from one wall of the shower. 
right? At least the main head. Some people have jets and that sort of thing. Do you stand with your back to it so the water is mostly hitting the top of your head, your neck, and on down? Or do you face the shower head where the water is falling onto your face? Which you sometimes see, for example, in movies where people are having existential crises or maybe they're hungover or something. They want the water directly on their face. I will say that I have done both. I'm a shower person. We've established this in the past. I don't really like baths. Baths seem, in theory, relaxing. I don't find them relaxing. Because it's just stagnant water that slowly gets colder. And you get all pruney. Even if you want to, like, have a glass of wine and put on some candles or whatever. It just it doesn't do it for me. I get it. Why some people, oh, the, the essential oils and all this stuff. If you're into it, God bless. I wish I liked it more because we have an awesome bathtub at the house. It's just, I've used it once. I was like, yeah, sorry. It's not, don't, don't like baths. I'm a shower person. And I have, as I was starting to say, faced both directions at different times. But to me, it's not even close which is the go-to position. I stand facing away from the shower head, I would say, 90% of the time, maybe more. If you're trying to wash something in particular or you want some of the water directly on your face, then you'll turn around. But to me, the default position is the water hitting you from behind. And I was surprised to see that apparently I am in the minority. Based on this poll, a plurality, 44%, face towards the shower. Whereas 43%, so it's, it's basically a tie. But only about half of us face away. I would have, I don't know, guessed that the numbers would have been lopsided in my direction, and that might be myopic, obviously. And if you look at the age breakdown... The older you get, apparently, the likelier you are to face the water. Where seniors, a majority face toward the source of the water, whereas the youngest group, 18 to 24-year-olds, a majority faces away. And you can see the numbers moving almost in a line between the oldest and youngest current generation of adults with millennials, Xers, and boomers falling on that continuum. And the older you get, the likelier you are to face the showerhead. Now, Producer Christine, as the oldest person by far working on this show, I do want to ask you what your position is here on showering. Do you actually agree with me, given our nearly violent disagreement on pumpkin spice? Or are we going to have another battle here? So uh, it's 50-50 here. First, I'm actually in total agreement with you on the bath thing. It seems like a great idea, and you get in the bath, and you realize you're just sitting in just your water, and yes, it's not yes. relaxing. Okay, you know what? I am I am deducting, and I hope you appreciate this as a callback to the previous segment, two segments ago. Ooh. I am deducting two basic points from you for not being a bath girl. But please go on. Yeah, no. 
No. Now, with the shower, and, okay, I don't want judgment here, but um, everything I do in the shower is facing the water except shampoo and conditioner. And if it's the weekend and if I'm having a shower beer, obviously I'm not going to face the water while I'm having my beer, so my back goes to the water. Do you do shower beers frequently? Um, I mean... Not during the week, no, but if, you know, I'm going out or whatever, if it's Saturday night, yeah, I mean, yeah shower beers are a thing. Where you do know? you put the beer, or do you just hold it at all times? <laughs> no, I don't hold I put it right where the soap dish is. I'll move there the soap got dish down. A little down. ledge and there. That's where, and sometimes in the winter, I drink my coffee in there. So wow. I'll put my coffee cup. It, it saves time, honestly. Like, if you're getting ready in the morning, I like, put it in. I need alcohol in my system right now. I'm going to have it here with me in the shower. Adam does shower have, beers, like or, yeah, or shower long drinks. He does shower long drinks. It's just I don't know. That's not something that I typically do. So it sounds like you're saying you are a towards the water gal for the most part, but you'll turn around for washing your hair, which makes sense, right? That just and beer, yeah, and and Alcohol for the beer because you can. All right. Well, so I guess we don't see eye to eye on this one, Wyatt. I have to ask you. As the younger person, although you're an old soul, but as a younger person, the data would suggest that you face away from the shower like I do. Is that accurate? Mostly mostly because I feel like you do do both, but I would have to say I do face away more than than I would the other way. So, yeah. Okay. All right. So that I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. And now I'm going to... I'm sure get a bunch of DMs on Instagram and tweets on Twitter. By the way, I'm at Guy P. Benson on both platforms from fanatical water facing showerers. It's funny what gets people riled up. Like I'll do an hour on hardcore politics, but we do one topic like this and people come out of the woodwork to explain in great detail why I'm wrong, which is fine. It's why we do the subjects to some extent. So here's another one. There's a poll that shows about two-thirds of Americans have a favorite spot on the couch or at the kitchen table, like their go-to spot. And my reaction was only two-thirds? I would assume this is like a universal thing. Of course you have a favorite spot on the couch. Of course you have a favorite seat at the dinner table. I have my spot at the dinner table. It's where I almost always sit. Like virtually every single meal that's being consumed at that table, that's where I sit. And on the couch, I've got we've got one of those L-shaped couches, and I like to be right in the elbow, like right at the 90-degree angle because it's comfortable. You can sort of lean back. You can stretch out in one direction. You can have the dog next to you or on your legs or whatever. The only issue is that's also Adam's preferred spot, so we do sometimes fight over it. Or someone will get up to go to the bathroom and go do something, and then we'll come back to discover the spot has been taken. Oh. Yeah, that does happen. Christine, do you have your own established spots, or are you in constant competition with Bobby over certain prized positions? I mean, no, not with Bobby, because if I say that I want to sit there, Bobby moves. Very nice of him to do wow. that. So, wow. no, there's no competition with Bobby, but, I mean, you just sparked something. I mean, this is my childhood, the fighting that would go on for that specific 
spot. We had that same couch that you have, I had growing up, and the same spot was where my sister and I both wanted to be. And she was older, and she was bigger at the time, so there was a lot of fighting that went around, a lot of dragging me off that spot. Uh, And also, did you have a specific spot in the car? Like, I always sat behind Judgy Joyce, and my sister always sat behind my father. Actually, no, I did not have a spot in the car. Wow. Yeah, we had our specific spots. I didn't want to sit in the middle, obviously. Didn't want to sit in the middle in that back seat. And I usually avoided that fate. But aside from that, no, it's just sort of whatever. And I see we're almost out of time here, but I see a little text message here. My phone blinks. It lights up. Cookie has sent a little note to the group chat (laughs) about a shower beer drink holder that I guess you can attach to the wall of your shower and you've written if anyone is looking to buy cookie a Christmas present and the answer to that question is I am most certainly not looking to buy you a Christmas present because it's August Christine it's not fall for your pumpkin spice and it is certainly not Christmas gift season so if you want to hang on to this one and maybe revisit it in let's say November or early December I will take it under advisement at that time but at this time we're out of time hope to have you back here tomorrow on the radio it's the Guy Benson show same time same place have a good night listen to be part of the conversation with me Brian Kilmeade I'll talk about the biggest stories of the day and get your take along with some of the biggest newsmakers around listen live on the Fox News app or get the podcast at BrianKilmeadeShow.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.